You know, I've been having a lot of conversations in the past couple of weeks with a lot of different people. And one thing that I keep hearing over and over again is this question of whether President Biden is the right leader for not just the Democratic Party, but even America at the moment that we're in right now. It's starting to sound like people are just feeling very dissatisfied and even disillusioned with his leadership. This is politics producer Arjun Singh. He's been thinking a lot about the president's popularity or lack thereof. President Biden's trip to Ohio comes as a new Monmouth University poll shows that his approval rating down dismal. Just months before the midterm elections, a handful of domestic issues are driving the political agenda. Rising inflation, a series of high profile shootings and the overturning of Roe versus Wade. It's all dragging down President Biden's approval rating. The president's low approval ratings have really, really frightened him and Democrats around the country, especially on Capitol Hill. Arjun spoke with a couple of our colleagues about this, including White House reporter Cleve Woodson, who made this interesting point. Look, Biden's superpower is that he could be Trump, right? And if you look back at it, if you talk to voters up and down across the country, it was that, look, Biden, I can beat Trump. These other folks can't. And people believe that and they voted him as their nominee for the Democrats. But for many of the voters who put him in office, they're not getting what they wanted from a Biden presidency. It was voting rights. It was criminal justice reform. Now now it's, you know, abortion access, right? I think there's a, a, a good number of people who say, look, we want someone stronger. We want someone that's more of a fighter. We want someone different. And, and the question is, are the alternatives somebody that can have Biden's superpower? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, July 12th. Today, we talk about Biden's slipping popularity, what it means for the upcoming elections, and even his ability to govern now. Plus, an uplifting story about a superworm that could help solve the garbage crisis. But first, here's our politics producer, Arjun. I'm joined here by two of our White House reporters who I'm really excited to talk to. Cleve, can I start with you? Can you introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do at The Post? I'm Cleve Wootson. I'm a White House reporter for The Washington Post, and I am heading to Israel and Saudi Arabia with Biden this week. And Yasmin, it's great to have you here as well. Can I have you introduce yourself and tell us what you do at The Post? Yes, I'm Yasmin Abutalib, and I'm a national reporter for The Washington Post. Okay, so as Cleve hinted at, President Biden is in the Middle East this week, but I want to touch on a different piece of news, which is that yet another coronavirus variant seems to be percolating throughout the country. So, Yasmin, can I just start with you? What exactly is BA5, and how should we be thinking about this new variant of the virus? So BA5 is basically the latest subvariant of Omicron, which we've been contending with since the winter. These Omicron subvariants have been extremely frustrating to deal with because it keeps evolving into variants that are even more contagious. So 
if you think back to the original coronavirus strain, this one is multiple, multiple times more contagious than what we were dealing with in 2020, and then much more contagious than the Delta variant, and then even much more contagious than the Omicron variant we were dealing with just six months ago during our winter surge. So BA5 has this remarkable ability to evade all the previous protections that your immune system has built up. So whether you're vaccinated and boosted, uh, whether you've had a prior infection, even people who have had prior Omicron infections are able to get reinfected with BA5. I think it's important to note that vaccinations and boosters still do an excellent job of keeping people from getting seriously ill and keeping them out of the hospital, keeping them from dying. Biden officials have said they're encouraged by the fact that uh, the the death rate has remained fairly steady. We haven't seen a huge spike in deaths or hospitalizations, but there is still a lot of spread happening right now, and most of it is not being caught because most people are using at-home tests or they're not testing at all. So there's a little bit over 100,000 reported cases right now, but experts think it could be up to 10 times that, that we're, it might be closer to a million cases a day uh, because I'm sure anecdotally people are seeing all their friends and family getting infected right about now. And what is the current Biden White House strategy dealing with COVID? And do you have a sense that it will change based on BA5? That's a great question. The U.S. has kind of had the same strategy for the last several months, which is there isn't much of a strategy. Um, the Biden administration has, of course, pushed boosters very, very hard, and they're doing that right now. Um, Ashish Jha, the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, said this weekend, anyone over 50 who hasn't gotten a booster shot in 2022 should definitely do that to help protect themselves against BA5, against severe illness. Uh, they have bought a lot of doses of Paxlovid, the Pfizer antiviral that uh, is very good at keeping people out of the hospital if you take it early in your infection. Uh, but that's that's mostly the strategy right now is to encourage as many people as possible to get boosters. We uh, will hopefully have a an Omicron-specific booster in the fall, um, and that, you know, hopefully will help against the fight. Um, there uh, are efforts to boost the antiviral supply and to uh, have even better drugs on the market. But I it, it is also difficult because the Biden administration has not succeeded in getting more money from Congress for the last several months for the coronavirus fight. So it's kind of a strange moment where we've got this really dangerous variant going around, infecting tons and tons of people, but the country doesn't really have any mitigation measures in place. Most people don't mask anymore. Social distancing has not happened for a long, long time. So it's spreading pretty uncontrolled right now. Yeah, I, I find that really interesting, you know, because what you outlined sounds like something that we should be taking very seriously. But I rarely see masks even inside of places like the gym or, say, a Target. Cleve, you spend a lot of time traveling, talking to different voters. Where does COVID line up when they talk to you about the concerns that they have or things that they want out of President Biden? I have the same experience, actually. I, I have this thing where I'm checking my pockets right now. You know, I always have keys, phone, wallet, mask when I leave. And I've gotten to the point I think a lot of people have gotten to the point where they, you know, the mask, if they don't have it, it's not DEFCON 10 anymore, right? And so now, just listening to Yasmin talk, I'm like, oh, is this something that I'm going to have to do over again? You have to remember, Biden promised voters freedom from the virus on July 4th. 2021, right? The the main, Biden said the, the primary thing that he is going to do in his first year in office is to help us get past 
uh, the virus and the fact that it is persistent, the fact that it is still here, the fact that I still have to kind of check my pockets to make sure that I have uh, my mask on me sort of adds to this sort of uh, voter disdain, right? This this voter fear of the way things are going. Gas prices are high. Inflation is up. Things, you know, the price of everything is up. And now, you know, the virus that we were supposed to be past at this point is not gone. And whether that's Biden's fault or not, like the reality of that is that, you know, people look to the president who said, this is, I'm going to help us get past this and, and say, well, you know, maybe you haven't with, you know, more than four months to go before the midterms. Yeah. And that's interesting because when I look to what Biden is saying, I feel like I have not heard or really seen Biden discussing the coronavirus, even these variants. Yasmin, is that fair to say that there has been a lack of communication from the White House towards the public about the fact that COVID is still something serious? And inside of the White House, what do they kind of pinpoint as the issue as to why people are starting to move on from the pandemic? Do they think that the White House needs to be more vocal about this? There's a policy factor or this is just sort of the way that the public is moving? I think it's definitely fair to say the White House isn't talking about this very much. You did see Ashish Jha, the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, talking about it this weekend. He had a Twitter thread letting people kind of understand what BA5 is, what they should be expecting. But the message from the White House for some time now has been COVID is with us. It's not going away, but we have the tools to deal with it. And that's been the way they've messaged it so that people can move on, live their lives, because they're well aware that there is just very little tolerance for COVID mitigation measures anymore, whether it's mask wearing or social distancing or just limiting limiting our lives in any way. It's been two and a half years of this. They know that people are pretty unwilling to do that at this point. But with the rise of BA5, with the fact that it's able to reinfect people, they're is a, a call from experts to to please communicate to people what's going on, that the reported cases are not capturing at all what's actually happening because of at-home tests and just that people, a lot of people don't test at all anyway. Uh, but that's not really breaking through right now. I think a lot of people just have kind of accepted this is our new reality. Uh, and if I get a COVID infection, I get a COVID infection. Um, but of course, there, are, there are, are a large group of people who feel left behind by that whole approach. And on that idea that they have the tools to fight it right now, one of the things that you brought up is that the administration has tried to ask for money from Congress, whether it is goes to funding more testing. Are we going to be prepared if Congress does not allocate that funding in the way that they have sort of described saying that we have the tools in the toolkit? That's a great question. So in terms of a, a fourth booster, there is a, a good possibility that they'll recommend another booster shot for everyone, especially uh, with this fall wave that they're expecting, where they've said we could see 100 million infections over three to four months. I think what people forget is the U.S. needs to compete with other countries to buy the doses of these vaccines and these antivirals. So what administration officials have warned about is if we do get a next generation vaccine, one that's more effective against Omicron specifically, they'll only be able to buy so many doses. They cannot buy enough for the entire population because other countries have already been able to place their orders. They cannot place orders for money that they don't have in place and aren't guaranteed to get. So let's look at what the administration is talking about this week. Biden's heading to the Middle East. His first stop is going to be in Israel. Why is he taking this trip and why now? Well, I think it's it's an interesting time for him to be visiting because Israel essentially has this caretaker government in place with elections planned in the coming weeks. So 
I think that the Israel portion of the trip for Biden is largely symbolic and reaffirming the U.S. partnership with Israel. He's very proud of his his long history of standing by Israel. He does have a sort of contentious relationship with Netanyahu. So that meeting will be interesting. Um, but I do think, you know, generally the, the Israel portion of the trip will be President Biden affirming his commitment, the sort of trip that U.S. presidents always make to Israel. Um, but I do think, you know, there is this one interesting element that is hanging over the trip a bit. It's not getting a ton of attention, but there was the recent killing of the Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla, uh, who is a U.S. Palestinian citizen, also had U.S. citizenship. Um, and the U.S. State Department concluded that Israeli forces killed her, that they didn't have reason to believe it was intentional. Uh, but that's obviously caused a lot of tensions in the region over the last few weeks. One of the things that Biden said throughout, just to harken back to what Yasmin said, is when he was running for president, he said, look, I have all these relationships. I know all these people. I know them on a first name basis. We've sat for hours. We've talked. He calls, you know, it's Bibi Netanyahu, right? Like, like it is It is about this. And, and Biden ventures into um, the Middle East really looking to meet people, right? Like, it, it, it's not about these old, long-standing relationships. It's about forging new bonds with people and making an effort to just, you know, not reinvigorate, but literally invent these relationships. So that's, I think that's particularly important. And I think that the second thing, and we saw this in, in Biden's trips to Tokyo and his recent trips to Europe, is, you know, these folks have the internet. You know, they they watch CNN. They they tune into the Washington Post. Like they they know about Biden's domestic troubles. They know about the difficulties he could face at the midterms. They know about the questions for him to not um to to, to not run for a second term that we've written about and others have written about. And so there's also the the question of whether you know these folks are going to sit there and shake Biden's hand, but also at the same time sort of look past him to like, can you deliver on anything that you say? Or is it just going to be a different government in two years? Are you going to be unable to deliver on anything even in a few months? Probably the most high profile visit, though, will be to Saudi Arabia, where he's not trying to necessarily forge a new bond. It seems like he will be caught in between that thing where he is trying to deliver on a promise he made to voters, which was to stand up to Saudi Arabia and their human rights abuses. Yet here is Joe Biden going to their country, shaking hands, giving them the prominence and the respect of two world leaders. How how would a voter kind of square that circle? But also, how does Joe Biden square that circle? Yeah, so... It is no secret that um, voters don't care as much about foreign policy as domestic policy. You should see me at a dinner party trying to bring up foreign policy and just hearing crickets and crickets and crickets. Right? I, I, I don't think that people pay as much attention to foreign policy, people that I talk to, um, as much. But they do pay attention to hypocrisy. You know, they do pay attention to um, their leaders saying one thing and then doing another thing. Joe Biden said, you know, I'll, I'll make Saudi Arabia a— a pariah. He spoke in very strong terms about the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, our colleague. Khashoggi was, in fact, murdered and dismembered, and I believe in the order of the crown prince. And I would make it very clear, we were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. There's very little social redeeming value of the in the present uh, government in Saudi Arabia. So he's faced 
a lot of questions and will continue to face questions this week, just squaring, are we shiny America that upholds these fundamental human rights or do we kind of cast them off for political expediency? I'm not going to change my view on human rights, but as President of the United States, my job is to bring peace if I can. Peace if I can. And that's what I'm going to try to do. Yasmin, I want to ask you, though, that while on one hand it could come across as hypocrisy, Saudi Arabia has been such a long-standing ally of the United States, even despite these obvious human rights abuses. Could you help unpack what is the strategic importance of a relationship with Saudi Arabia? Was it ever realistic for Biden to truly be able to say that they will treat Saudi Arabia as a pariah from both a national security and a global energy perspective. Can you just help explain what exactly the importance of this relationship is and the consequences of a full break with them would be? Yeah, it's a great point. I don't think it was realistic to say you'd be able to treat Saudi Arabia like a pariah because the U.S. has had about an 80-year relationship with Saudi Arabia. It's a really important strategic partner in the Middle East. The security relationship is very important. The energy relationship is very important. The U.S. gets Saudi oil. Um, and especially with high oil prices at home, even though it's unlikely, even if the Saudis agree to release more oil from this, their strategic reserve and produce more oil, which they've been reluctant to do so far, it's probably not going to make a real dent in U.S. gas prices. But It's an important domestic signal for Biden to send that he is trying everything he can to lower the price of gas in the U.S. Um, And Saudi Arabia is obviously very important to that. And then there's, of course, the security aspect of this. Both Israel and Saudi Arabia are important partners in deterring Iran. President Trump took the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear deal while he was president, and the Biden administration has struggled to reinstate that deal. Talks on the Iran nuclear deal have stalled, uh, so there's a lot of concern about Iran in the region. And then a lot of President Biden's foreign policy is oriented around trying to contain Russian and Chinese power. And so there are always these fears that if you isolate a country like Saudi Arabia and some other partners in the Middle East, that they will go to Russia or they will go to China instead. And one of the points of concern here is that a lot of Middle Eastern countries, including Saudi Arabia, did not stand very strongly with the West when they condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So it's just strategically, uh, I think, Biden's advisors finally convinced him this is too important a relationship to blow up or to rupture and that there has to be a restoration of the relationship there. I want to turn to the situation President Biden's leaving as he goes on this trip. On Friday, he signed an executive order to try to protect abortion access. I don't think the court, or for that matter, the Republicans who for decades have pushed the extreme agenda, have a clue about the power of American women. But they're about to find out, in my view. It's my hope and strong belief that women will, in fact, turn out in record numbers to reclaim the rights that have taken from them by the court. Yasmin, let me ask you, could the fall of Roe actually motivate voters enough to keep Democrats in control in Washington? So polls do show that the the fall of Roe is galvanizing Democratic voters and that Democrats have um, an advantage over Republicans in terms of how it's motivating people to vote in the midterms. I don't think it's going to be enough for Democrats to hold on to the House. That still looks like a long shot. You obviously never know, but Republicans are still heavily favored to take the House. Uh, I think the Senate is kind of up for grabs. Democrats could maintain control. Republicans could take control. Um, But 
there has been a lot of dissatisfaction with the president's response to the fall of Roe v. Wade. It's, it's It got a bit better with his signing of the executive order on Friday and this much more forceful tone he employed in a speech he delivered as he was signing the executive order, sort of better channeling the anger and the betrayal that uh, Democrats across the country are feeling over the Supreme Court decision. While I wish it had not come to this, this is the fastest route available. I'm just stating a basic fundamental notion. The fastest way to restore Roe Ro, is to pass a national law codifying Roe, which I will sign immediately upon its passage on, at my desk. I think he's facing a lot of pressure to continue to do more and to stay on this and to improve the public messaging around what the ruling means and what Democrats will do in response. And of course, there is this challenge in that there is just not that much the executive branch can do to blunt the impact of such a major Supreme Court ruling. And Cleve, that's something I want to ask you is that this is something that I think President Biden has been caught in for his entire administration is that there are forces out of his control that cannot lead him to do the big policy moves that he would like to enact. But clearly people are not satisfied with that answer. People are unhappy hearing we can't do these things. How does the Biden administration overcome that obstacle? It sounds like, once again, this is an issue of the White House failing to communicate or often communicating after the moment has happened. What do you make of that? How do they overcome that communication problem? You're right about them being out of his control, but I think 100 percent that's not going to stop people from blaming him. It's like it's like the prices of gas, right? Biden doesn't, you know, by and large affect the international price of a barrel of oil, but rising gas prices are are going to have a negative impact on that. What folks have told us that we've written these stories is that their their problem is not necessarily that they want Biden to expand the reach of the federal government or step outside of his 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 powers. I think what where folks um including in a really good story from Yasmin and some others have said is th- this this feeling that he's not fighting hard enough. And critics, Democrats, progressives, AOC, et cetera, are, are saying, look, try, like, just just try. You know, if you go down swinging, we, we will we'll, we'll be OK with that. I also think that there is a hesitance or at least a reluctance on the part of the White House to fight losing battles. Like if you if you look, if you if you go into the country and you talk to Democrats, they will say this. They will say, Trump did some stuff that we feel was illegal or like did not, you know, was was vastly past his power or whatever. But he was willing to 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 basically support his base, to do the things that he said he was going to do, even if it meant was ultimately overturned or, you know, it, it did not ultimately work out in the end. I think with Biden, who has historically, you know, been really enamored with the institutions of of Washington, D.C., really supportive of those institutions. I think there's just, you know, an unwillingness to sort of to do that. They, they think out how the, the game out. How is this going to play out? What's the end result of this going to be? OK, we're not going to fight that fight. And that, you know, while it makes logical sense to some people, it absolutely enrages others. As these midterms really start to ramp up, one thing I've been thinking about is that some Republicans have already said that if they win back the House, they're going to investigate President Biden's family. They may even push for articles of impeachment. What would that do to the rest of his presidency? What would it look like if he had to deal with a Republican Congress? 
Well, I mean, if he has investigations into his family, that's going to be hugely distracting and is going to take away from needing to actually attend to the duties of the president if he has to fight on all sorts of fronts. I mean, this administration's already fighting one crisis after another. They've got inflation. They've got high gas prices. They have uh, Supreme Court rulings. Um, they've got the coronavirus pandemic, which just hasn't abated the the year and a half they've been in office. Uh, they Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They already fighting on so many fronts. And then on top of that, for the president to be distracted because a Republican House is investigating his son and members of his family. Um, we already know there's been um, a lot of attention sort of diverted to that because of a lot of the misinformation that also results around that. And um, I think it just makes it hard to also stay above the fray, which is something Biden's aides, Biden and his aides are very proud of that he's able to do, that he sort of stays above the political fray. Um, he doesn't engage in fights tit for tat, but that's going to be different if, if you're dragging his family into it. Then he's just going to be fighting on every possible front, including domestically, when he has crises to actually attend to. Yasmin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Cleve, thank you so much for joining us today. Safe travels. Thanks as always. I appreciate it. That was Cleve Woodson and Yasmin Abutalab speaking with our politics producer, Arjun Singh. This story was produced by Sharla Freeland. After the break, a bug that could solve the garbage crisis. We'll be right back. And now, one more thing. You know, it's kind of creepy. (laughs) If you see it in a video... It can look like little tiny pincers just munching on little tiny bits of styrofoam and you get tiny crinkling noises. That's Pranshu Verma, an innovations reporter with The Post. And he is not a bug person. No, not even in the slightest. I do not like creepy crawlers. And yet, last month, he subjected himself to watching this video of darkling beetle larvae. It was recorded by researchers at the University of Queensland, and they had just published a paper showing that the small paperclip-length larvae could eat and actually digest styrofoam. They have an enzyme in their gut, essentially, that can process this and not die and can do this pretty effectively. This is now unlocking a solution that we might have to figure out how we could use this in large-scale landfills to reduce the amount of styrofoam. For years, styrofoam has been a big problem. But recently, there's been an added urgency to find ways to break it down because of what scientists are calling a garbage crisis. Styrofoam is a type of plastic. It comprises about 30% of all landfill space worldwide. And it's very hard to recycle because think about it. When you use a styrofoam plate or a styrofoam cup, it's filled with food material, it's wet, and it just becomes not possible to be into the recycling stream. Half of all single-use styrofoam plastic ends up in either landfills or they end up underwater. And we know that it degrades underwater habitats. It can kill 
plants. It can kill fish underwater and it emits often a type of chemical that is very harmful to the environment as well as it decomposes. And it takes about 500 years to actually naturally decompose as well. And so people are looking for a way to naturally dispose of this styrofoam but do it in a way that's actually healthy and not clogging up landfill space. And so solutions like this, people want to turn to nature. But what would it actually look like to put these larvae to work? Pranshu says he sees two ways this could play out. There's one solution, which is we learn about this enzyme and then we we kind of replicate it through science and put the chemicals that make this enzyme do what it does into like a solvent. And so what you could see in the future is you have a landfill and there's a bunch of styrofoam. You separate that styrofoam out into a separate stream and then you condense it and put it into a solvent that is filled with this enzyme that then just naturally eats away at this styrofoam. The second option hits a little closer to home. So the other solution, which might be a little creepy, is something that Stanford researchers and a couple of other researchers have said is, why don't we make at-home composting kits? And why don't we actually give you these larvae that you can just buy in some setting, in some way, and then you have a separate styrofoam composting kit that you just dump these little larvae on? And that's creepy because that would require you know, people to be okay with these larvae just eating styrofoam in a separate thing in their home. But it makes it maybe a more sustainable solution because we're doing it at the individual level. But then again, it's the battle that you have with climate change solutions. It's how much can be done on individual action versus larger industrial solutions. And so that's kind of the next challenge that a lot of these scientists and industry people are kind of going to have to grapple with. Pranshu Verma is an innovations reporter with The Post. This segment was produced by Natalie Bettendorf. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter. It was edited by Maggie Penman and Rena Flores. And if you haven't heard yesterday's episode about the Uber files, our investigation into how Uber became this global transportation giant using aggressive tactics, check that out along with much more online at The Washington Post. This kind of reporting that scrutinizes power, whether it's a company or governments, is only possible thanks to the support of Washington Post subscribers. And right now, The Post is running a deal on digital subscriptions. You can get the next year of news for just $40. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe or find the link in our show notes. I'm Elahe Izadi, and I'll be sitting in for Martine for the rest of the week. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.